0: When we started this podcast in early 2019, one of our first guests was indie rock six-piece The Wilderness, and looking back on it, they made a perfect introduction to the music scene in town, as they checked pretty much every box a Kingston band can. They've played nearly all the venues and festivals in town. The band is made up of members from all over the world, including the U.S. and Europe, many of whom came to town for school. Their sound mixes together barroom, heartland rock energy with an introspective folk sincerity. They even came together at an open mic at Musiki in 2015. And, of course, they've got tragically hip connections. A lot has happened for the Wilderness since we last checked in with them. They dropped the single Virginia Sapphire last November and geared up for a massive tour across North America and Europe planned for early 2020.
1: Now we can get up slowly In lives, we found
0: peace and quiet. Sadly, the tour got derailed, but that energy was refocused into recording at the legendary bathhouse studio. The new album, Until Tomorrow, is the highly anticipated full-length record from the wilderness. And lead singer Jonas Lewis-Anthony and saxophonist Nick Lennox join us on location at Skeleton Park to tell us all about it. Can you say something, please? Hello, I'm Riley Jabor. Yes. <laughs> Good enough. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. Yeah. let's start talking. Uh, is
2: there anything in particular you guys want to talk about? So I'm sure we we've been busy, 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 busy. Yeah. Um. We've been doing all sorts of artistic projects. We wrote a book. Yeah, we wrote a little book. <laughs>
0: really? Yeah. Um,
2: it's like a 30-page yeah, yeah.
3: mini book to like replace, I guess cds because people aren't buying those so we figured most people will be listening to the album on spotify if we could sell them a little thing that could pair with listening to it digitally something physical that'd be great so we wrote like a little 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 booklet 32 pages that's yeah. cool. awesome so yeah. what's what's in the book we, we had this idea when we were uh like on Howe island and i was saying like you know we this is our first album ever we need to give people some like insight into it so there's like an introduction about the year that that preceded the album what led us to want to write it it was about the writing experience itself about recording it and then we go into like 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 pretty significant
0: detail on each song as well that's good i like that (laughs) and i've been thinking about that too because it's such a weird time because bands... I mean, Spotify doesn't pay shit. Yeah. No. Uh, so, I mean, all the money is basically live performance, right? Yeah, so, yes. like, how else do you do you make money? And I keep saying, oh, maybe there needs to be more physical media. Like, I love vinyl. And I asked you, like, yeah. the album's going to be on vinyl eventually? Is yeah, that right? It's yeah, it's like everything's super backed up right now with uh, the people we're pressing the records with. But
3: it, they're in the works. Unfortunately, we're just not going to have them for the 21st.
0: Okay. Yeah. But I, I mm. love that. I love when people are finding creative ways to... You know, not only just you know pay the bills, but to enhance that experience with fans. Well,
3: that that, and that was like the whole thinking behind it because we had this big meeting where we're like, okay, how are we going to bring this album out? Obviously, we're going to put it on social media, like Spotify, streaming platforms, etc. But you know, I I'm a purist, I guess you could say. I love going uh, to shows and buying physical copies of the band's merch who I see Mm. because it's like I I know as a musician, it's like one of the only ways you can actually support. An artist. However, 99% of the time, I know even as a music consumer and, and, and buyer that most of the time I'm just going to buy said CD to support and then it's going to collect dust. It might get a spin in my car. Um, and I think that's the reality for most people who buy CDs these days is that they will buy CDs at a show because they want to support and then they don't really get listened to.
0: And you don't want to feel like you're asking for a handout either, right? Like no, you want to no. create it, value. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you want to. Um, music isn't help me out here but i mean it's not like it's some sort of public service it's like this no. is this is what we do exactly right? yeah.
3: mm-hmm. and and one of the things behind it was that we thought well okay you know one of the pr- main approaches and the main things that we've really stro- strove strived for in this band is to be like like transparent and approachable. It's not just you know Jonas in the Wilderness. It's the Wilderness. It's the Brav's. We are really sort of, sort of like open and, and like to communicate with our fans. And um, and that was one thing that we thought about the book. Is that you know this is a huge deal for us. It being our first record. It's been a long time coming. Why not create like a little piece of art that could be paired with somebody who's listening to it. And if if it becomes like a coffee top bookshelf, you know, <laughs> thing, so be it. But, like, you know, why don't we give some people a little bit of insight and do something a little bit different than just being like, our album's up on Spotify, enjoy it, kind of thing.
4: (laughs) It truly would, like, enhance the listening experience, too, because that's something that so many artists have expressed kind of remorse about the digital age where you don't get the liner notes. Right. You don't have that moment of you, you come home from the record store, you open up the CD or the, the album jacket anymore, exactly, yeah. Yeah. and you can pour over the lyrics and the liner notes while totally. you give it that first listen. And that was something I loved back when, you know, physical media was how you always got music. But having that companion book seems like such a, a modern way to continue that tradition and, and enhance that experience the same way.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of like an extensive version of that. It's like it's a bigger than an album booklet that you'd find in a, like a jewel case for sure. But it's also like a bit more intimate, yeah. if if I may. Like there's there's song by song breakdowns that like talk about the inspiration, the composition of the thing. Sometimes it's musical. Sometimes it's like, hey, listen for this cool thing. Um, and then there's also just stuff about like how we put ourselves into it. Really, like how we put like every bit of ourselves and our in our heart and souls if you will it's cheesy as it may be like we just wrote all about that and it's like here's how this thing came to life so i think that like you obviously don't need to read it to listen to the album the album like reads front to back very beautifully and we're very proud of it but like if you have this thing along with it then you'll have a completely different understanding of it that's like a lot more rooted in i guess where it came from yeah and one of the things that i think is so great
3: about music is that you know You write the song and it's yours and you record the song and it's the band's and then you put the song out and it's everybody else's but yours and Mm. it's basically everybody else's interpretation of it. But personally, when I listen to a song, I want to know exactly what it's about. You know, I want (laughs) to know who this person is and what their story is and what happened. Um, And so, you know... It's great that people can interpret the songs however they wanted to, but for me, I thought it, especially for a couple songs, I thought it, it was really important that they understood the backstory. There's a couple songs on the record, like 25, If I Have to Die, uh, You Look So Good When You Cry, it's a blues for me personally, that like, I need people to know the story in order for them to make sense, and for them maybe to not be misinterpreted in another, in another way. And if we can do that by selling them uh, a little booklet that they can read and sort of immerse themselves in the land of the of the wilderness then that's that's great
0: i'm glad you brought that up because riley and i were talking before you guys arrived about like we listen to the album we love the album but what songs do we feel stand out and if i have to die and 25 we both agreed were the standout songs Oh, amazing Mm. thank you um i that's cool that we all sort of agree on that first of all (laughs) i like that we're all on the same page um And, yeah, I I did want to talk about the meaning of the song. And 25, I have to say, and I think we're going to play If I Have to Die in the podcast. It's the the single right now. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I love the the video. is really cool, too. Thank you. For the listener. If you haven't seen the video, check it out. It's just cool seeing the band together
2: with all these weird effects happening. Uh, we also
3: filmed it in complete isolation. None of us saw each other while filming I was yeah. wondering about We <laughs> never yeah. in the same
2: room at the same time. We went in individually, filmed all our parts off of this long old list, and we're, they were put together afterwards to put us in the same room because it was at like the the height of the pandemic when yeah. it was just unfolding. So. Yeah.
0: Well, I want so many things to talk about. I was wondering about <laughs> that, too, because... Um, some of these songs I've heard before played live, I'm pretty sure, but obviously some of them are new. Like, what was done pre and what was done post-pandemic? Like, was there any songs on the album that you wrote since the pandemic hit?
3: No, no. Uh, every single song on the record was written before the pandemic. I guess the last song that was written for the record was Citalopram Blues. We went away in January and we spent two weeks in this amazing cabin in Quebec that... I don't think we'll ever be as lucky as we were then to find such an amazing place and when we came back we were demoing these songs like crazy in in my bedroom so this would have been February and then Nick sent me this video being like oh I think you'll find this interesting and it was like a TED talk about songwriting Mm -hmm. and I was like oh I'll show this guy I'm gonna write a song right here right now and it just came together and it was the last song we wrote for the album everything else was either written in the cabin or prior to being in the cabin Um, but yeah that that was probably the closest song written in proximity to the pandemic
2: but none of them are pandemic songs it was surprisingly like also one of the most done when we got to the studio it's it's worth mentioning that when we got to the bathhouse we had a bunch of songs that like were performance ready we could play them some of them like you've noted we've actually been playing for years now mm-hmm. like i think it's the first handful of them on the album they're actually all like, yeah the first three right there at once and then some of them like I had a, like, I wrote one tune called You the Ocean, and I literally had a paper, like, I had a chart and said, can we play this? And they're like, probably. And so when we got to the bathhouse, we played it for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I just, like, conducted it. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> but uh Sitalopram Blues was like, when Jonas wrote it, all of us were like, this is awesome. Let's learn it right now. And so we went and rehearsed it immediately. <laughs> if I Have to Die
3: is a really interesting one for me in context with the pandemic and everything else, because... Ooh. I I remember writing it. I wrote it at the cabin. And that was like January. And all of the news that was on my phone at the time was just apocalyptic and hellish. It was like, Donald Trump is going to start a world war with Iran. Iran is blowing planes out of the sky. There's this mystical, terrifying thing that we're not really taking seriously yet in our peripheral vision called coronavirus. That seems kind of threatening. Billionaires are going to destroy the fucking planet through their own greed. And climate change is just going to kill us all too. And I was thinking we're just going to die. Like, we're like the doomsday clock is ticking and we're all going to die and nobody's doing a fucking thing and I can't do a fucking thing about it. And oh my God, why am I caring about my hurt feelings and my broken heart when literally the world is on fire around us? And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh Jesus, I just wrote like a preemptive...
4: anthem That's not what I wanted You wrote the closing credits To the world Yeah basically
0: Basically No that's why I asked the question I was hearing the song I was like This seems too fresh Yeah (laughs) it was And it really like It really wasn't
3: about COVID at all Really it was Because I remember When we wrote it It was just kind of On like In our peripheral vision In the news They were tired of talking About this virus That was happening in China And back then it was like Oh it's just like Whatever There's a virus That's happening on the other side of the world not that that's something to shrug your shoulders at but when it doesn't when it's not sort of when the forest fire isn't burning in your own backyard you kind of don't notice it so much but uh, that song definitely got recontextualized a lot as Mm. the world kept changing you know and that was another reason why I I felt like it was really important to speak about it in this little booklet thing because obviously like we were going to put the song out on the 25th of May which was two days after George Floyd was murdered and we all came to the, the Uh, collective agreement that that would just not be remotely appropriate A because the spotlight wasn't ours to take at that point in time and B like some of the lyrics felt a little bit too on the nose and I felt that if we put it out right now it's just going to be in really poor taste because of everything that was happening in the states at the time the states in uh, everywhere, and the states in everywhere. Yeah, yeah really. Well, um,
0: that's the kind of thing. I don't think it would even feel necessarily disrespectful, but it's just it was such a big thing, and still is. It just it wouldn't have felt important by comparison.
3: Yeah, and, and I think I think that there were a lot, there were many more important voices to be heard at that moment. You know, I was saying that if we put out a month earlier in April, which we were originally planning to do, I think it would have had a much, it would have been sort of it had a very different impact. And I think it would have had an important impact. The whole idea was that if we put it out in April on the height of the pandemic, it might be sort of defiantly uplifting. And then when that happened in May, it was, it was, I just saw it as like grossly inappropriate. And then I also thought, I don't even know if I want to put this song out at all in case it's mis, uh, misinterpreted and in case other terrible things happen. And, you know, unfortunately, the day it came out, there was that big explosion in Beirut. And the world just keeps burning you know physically and like metaphorically and and we again i was like i don't know if we should put the song out because the the album so the single artwork is of a mushroom cloud behind a house you know and then you know i came to the conclusion that yeah the world is a fucking terrible place right now (laughs) uh horrific things keep happening and i think you know we just need to sort of acknowledge that horrific things keep happening but try and find some kind of good and comfort in the people around you.
1: Between the line All of apathy and desperation It's enough to leave you paralyzed My coffee cup is cooling down but you ask what's on my mind I tell you I've been losing sleep As the doomsday clock takes closer to midnight But don't look at your phone Nothing there but bad news
2: point made earlier about importance and i think that if i may speak for like some of the people in the band that that's something that we struggled with a lot yeah of like thinking that like really that we we aren't you know and not to like say that we are or anything but in the face of like systemic racism in the face of like disasters occurring around the world like really one of the things that we struggled with was like is it is this important like are we as individuals important and that's what this song is kind of wrestling with is this duality between like Seeing all of this this chaos going on around the world and feeling like you have no power whatsoever, and really the conclusion that we ended up coming to especially after everything that was going on with uh, George Floyd's murder and the upheavals that were going on around around racism was that like there is a degree of importance that the individual has like there's change that you can make in small ways and so we like really had to shift our understanding of this song um, yeah. before we put it out we ended, we opted to put it out eventually but like it. Um, Wow, we wrestled with it so hard. We wrestled with it a lot, a um, lot. It's, because it felt powerless, but it's not. You yeah.
0: know. it's become such a cliched thing to call it unprecedented times, which oh, it yeah. is. But I oh, think yeah. eventually you just got to go on living. We can't anticipate all this chaos, right? It, we have these things we want to do, and eventually we just have to to do it, right? Absolutely,
3: and and mm. that was that was a, a a big big point that I wrestled with it was like you know because of all the chaos that's happening in the world because of all the unprecedented things that are happening should we just stop you know do we have a place is it really the time for six white dudes singing about our hurt feelings anymore and part of me thinks no it's not you know like there are really far more important things that could be done and could be said and then the other part of me is saying I know that our music makes a difference to some people's lives and we also have a platform, therefore we have a responsibility to do the right thing and to keep doing what we do but maybe pushing a message of like, not just of positivity and everyone having a good time but like, anti-racism like we can push that anti-fucking capitalist scum we can push that too, anti-billionaires you know what I mean, like, you know there's so many bands in the world that are like you know, considered like, to have done subversive things and they like, really haven't um, and I think it's a really, as as we're sort of moving forward into the next stage of our career, we can either just write like dancing in the dive bars 50 fucking times, or we can like actually use our voice and our platform to like make a difference, albeit small, but you know, well, small changes is, is the catalyst to big change, I guess.
0: That, that's how you connect with people. You got to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you can't second guess yourself and say, hey, we're going to do dancing in the dive bar like a thousand times. Or yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. I yeah. wish to point out that as we're speaking and as we talk about Black Lives Matter, Riley Jabor is wearing a shirt which, in the uh, Black Sabbath uh, Master of Reality motif, says Black Lives Matter, and I, I really like that shirt. That's a rock and roll. That's t-shirt. truly
4: excellent. Yeah. <laughs> speaking was, of, uh, they're selling this on their website with all the proceeds going to Black Lives Matter. Good. I can't remember if they still have the stock going, but uh, it was like thirty-five bucks, and all that money went to Black Lives Matter. So Hell please yeah. buy them; they're great. Excellent. Cheap plug. I kind of want one too. Yeah, yeah. they're great. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was a million points in there that was like oh those connect to those next questions I had but we talked we covered literally everything in the planet right there. <laughs> uh, so let's let's double back for a second. You were talking about how some of the songs on the record are so fresh cuz they were written just before the you went into the the studio to record them. Yeah. You went into the bathhouse on what was it sort of July 15th to record? No, no. So so yes but y- no. Yes <laughs> yes and no. So Okay, I was we, very confused yeah, about the timeline uh, here cuz we it seemed unbelievably quick as a turnaround.
3: Oh, yeah. No, so we went to the bathhouse on the 3rd of March and we were done recording on the 12th, the day before, or two days before the lockdown happened, which was wild. Then we went back in July and we recorded eight songs off the album, again, live off the floor and filmed them so that we have some virtual content to release with the album. And quite frankly, because we were bored out of our minds and just wanted to do something.
2: (laughs) Needed a purpose.
3: Yeah, so we went back, we recorded like eight eight tracks and filmed them, which were going to be released... In the coming weeks after the album comes out uh and then we started recording some really really old wilderness deep cuts because we just had some time and we're bored yeah um i don't know if those will see the light of day anytime soon but uh <laughs> uh but the the like the we recorded basically the entire record
2: in nine days in march yeah. that is bananas it was ridiculous was it was bananas, it was, bananas. It, it was absolutely crazy but like very fulfilling it yeah. was like there's this like this dance between complete chaos and some form of structure that happened at the bathhouse where like you could just be on deck at any point in time like you just had to be ready to go you were just drinking coffee all day making sure you were hydrated like i'm gonna have to go do this thing right now um at least that's how i felt as yeah. a saxophone player but like yeah. we somehow managed to get it done we went in there thinking we were gonna do like what nine songs right yeah
3: we we definitely <laughs> we did like 13 yeah we did 13 yeah we definitely weren't expecting to, to get that much done the fact that we got 13 songs done, we don't owe it to ourselves. We really owe it to, like, Rob Baker and to yeah, Niles, Spencer. Niles Spencer. Niles was a machine. He, you know, the rest so of what us... What was
0: Niles' role in
3: this? He was the engineer. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, as Nick was saying, the rest of us were kind of on cool at any moment, but Niles was there from 10 a.m. to gone 10 p.m. every day in the control room, pressing record, making quick edits, just, like, comping tracks. He did, it like, he, he made the process so much easier. Um, and we would not have got thirteen songs in nine days if Niles wasn't a fucking wizard.
2: <laughs> no, especially considering some of those songs were built from the ground up. Like again, this recording experience was interesting for us because we were able to slam out a few of them live off the floor because we had been playing them for years. Yeah. But other ones, like we literally had to go in and be like, Okay, we have an acoustic guitar track and a vague impression of what this will sound like at the end. Twenty five is one of those songs. Yeah. Jonas composed it on an acoustic guitar, but you know, what do we have at our disposal at the bathhouse? There's a grand piano there. All right, let's play with that. And we just spent all day throwing everything we have at the wall yeah. and seeing what sticks Yeah, Rob, Rob was saying that we were taking the sub down Yeah, <laughs> we, took, we took the sub down Deep, to like, many leagues to the bottom of
3: the Mariana Trench and some of those fucking tunes man <laughs> yeah and yeah there was a Holy Cross high school like 50 inch kick drum I've never seen a kick drum quite like it that was it was a that, marching
2: drum marching drum one of them you'd wear on your shoulders we, yeah. put, we put that on that there was, that was on there <laughs> everything that could have gone on was was tried totally in that album yeah there was several piano tracks, even like I played a grand piano track. Liam played a grand piano track. Like there's there's a million things going on yeah, in this song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was it like working with Rob Baker? <laughs> it was like maybe the greatest. It was so excellent. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was so good.
3: We couldn't believe it, man. So, well, how did you get connected with him through Boris from Casador? Okay. Um, so when we were in the studio, it's not the studio. Sorry, the cabin in January, like. We had this ridiculous sort of turnaround time for this record because we got a really amazing opportunity to go to Europe in May. Obviously, that didn't happen. (laughs) Um, But basically, the the plan was we need to write this fucking record, record it in February, have a single out by April, and then maybe, I think the record was supposed to come out at the end of May, beginning of June after we did Europe or some in conjunction with this Europe thing. So, in the past, we'd worked with Terry Ben, and Terry Ben recorded If I Have to Die at his studio, and he mixed it. Yeah, I actually mixed the whole record. But Terry was going to Australia, Australia in March uh, to meet his uh, partner's family. So, that kind of put a spanner in the works for the sort of the turnaround time for the record. So, we had a meeting with him. It was literally yeah. the day after our Three Cheers for Five Years show. We were hung over and sitting at Peter's place, and we, he was, we were basically talking about how are we going to get this record out. And while we were at the cabin, Boris said said to me, he was like, you should message Niles at the bathhouse to see if you could get some time there. That would be great. So we kind of thought about that. So then we had like a back and forth because it seemed that Terry wasn't able to to work on the record. And then basically he was like, okay, you should send some of these demos to my dad and see if he's interested in producing you guys. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's a no. You know, like he's not (laughs) going to want to, like, what? Rob Baker wants to, oh, okay, So he gave me his email address and I sent him an email like, hey, Rob, we're the Wilderness, Uh, you know, big big fans. Um, Can you, uh, here are some demos. Boris said that you might be interested in producing us. And we sent him like...
2: I'm pretty sure it was If I Have to Die in 25.
3: Yeah, we sent him If I Have to Die in 25, just to give him an idea. And the next day he was like, you want to go for a coffee? So we met up with him for a coffee. And I thought it was going to be him just kind of sussing us out. Um, but it was very clear from the coffee conversation that he was already like, okay, so when we when we were recording at the bathhouse, like who's playing what? We were all just sitting there yeah. looking at each other, like,
1: holy Blown shit, away. he wants to fucking work with us.
3: <laughs> and then the actual process of working with him was a dream come true. Totally. He pulled things out of us that I didn't even think we were capable of doing. Yeah. He understood and connected with the material. There's a lot of stuff on that album about grief and sadness and stuff, and I feel like if anybody is experienced in that field, it's him. And And... He just cared so much about the songs and mm-hmm. would, would sit there one on one with each of us as we did our part, sort of dancing and getting into it and oh. crushing Palm Bay's, shotgunning Palm Bay's with us, which is a, <laughs> another thing we owe That's the a album of its own. to. That <laughs> really is. But it was, it was amazing, man. And, and, and he was, the first day meeting him, I was like, oh my God, I'm in the room with a rock star right now. But they didn't feel that way working with him. And it it didn't feel like we had to prove ourselves to him or anything. He was there working with us, taking us at face value. And it was just such a privilege. really was such a privilege.
2: It's Uh, worth noting that um, one of the big reasons that he wanted to work with us was 25. He kind of like pulled some of... I don't know if you were there for this, Jonas, or not. But he pulled some of us aside in the studio and said like, when I heard that song, it was like just a demo at this point. I just cried. Like, sat down and cried, and I knew that's, that's why I wanted to work with you guys.
0: Okay, we keep dancing around 25. Let's get into it. Okay. I said to Riley before you guys got here, I think 25 is the best song this band has produced. Really? really? Yes, wow. I do.
3: I got chills. Just thank you.
0: <laughs> I got chills saying it, actually. You can, wow. You can see it. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm a hairy guy. You can see the hair <laughs> yeah, standing I up. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? There's obviously a story there. It's obviously very personal. Yeah. What's, what's going on? So, Okay i got to go back.
3: Uh, I was in high school in the UK and back at the time I was really big into busking. That was basically the only way I got to play music. There wasn't much in terms of uh, venues in my hometown. A lot of myself and my fellow musicians in Canterbury, we found our sort of audience and our stage on the street. And there was a really vibrant busking community in town and we were all very, very close. So there was this guy called Hugo, who I went to high school with. He was a year below me. And another guy called Daniel Lloyd, who was a few years older than me. He was in his 20s. Hugo was 17. And, you know, we'd always see each other. It was like a daily thing. We'd see each other. Hugo and I went to school. We were mates at school. We played on the same football team. Dan was 24, and he was just like the busker. It's like, it's such a weird thing to describe because it... it, it like, the busking scene in Canterbury was, like, better than the music scene. There were, like, the sort of A-list buskers and, like, the sort of B and C-lists who were trying to be cool and busk on the same pitch as the as the cool guys kind of thing. And then there was Dan, Dan, Dan Lloyd, who we all called Tig, and then this other guy called Vince, who I still think is busking there to this day, but... So we were all really tight. It was like a very close-knit mu- a musician thing, and Hugo and I were obviously mates from school. We'd known each other since I was in year eight, which is the second year of high school, and he was in year seven. So one night, I'm fucking piss drunk walking up the high street. It was January 2012. And I had a cold that evening, I remember. So I'd taken some uh, paracetamol, which I guess is um, Tylenol. And learned that you probably shouldn't take Tylenol if you have a cold and go drinking because I had one drink and I was fucking hammered so I was stumbling up the high street and then Tig and Hugo were there standing on the street corner at, with this other guy called Pat who was this sort of weird dude in his 50s who I was like why the fuck are they hanging out with him that's weird kind of thing you know like you don't really see him together and Pat was like eyes rolled back in the back of his head slumped up against the wall and I remember thinking like this is a very strange Dynamic. There's something odd going on here. Hugo was meant to be meeting us at this pub called The Blind Dog. We were all 17. They didn't give a shit uh, at this pub. So I said to Hugo, like, are you coming to The Blind Dog? Kind of, I sensed that there was something a bit wrong. And he's like, no, we're going to go pick up. And I was like, oh, fuck. And I remember thinking, like, you should fucking, you should come with us, man. Because there's like, I don't know. I, it was, you know, when you just get that gut feeling that something's off. It was that kind of thing. But I was like Hugo was like six foot four when he was 17 and he was like pretty well built, you know He was on the rugby team. I was like no one's gonna fuck with this guy. All right. I'll see you later The only reason I didn't go with them to do whatever the fuck they were doing was because I had a cold and had taken paracetamol And I was like I probably shouldn't go and do whatever they're about to do Anyway, a few days later. I get a call from the police Hugo and Dan had been missing. Turns out they had picked up some drug that wasn't the drug that they thought that they were supposed to have taken, and somehow, in the fucking coldest night in January, the three of them, Dan, Hugo, and this guy Pat, had drowned in a pond in January, except for Pat, the old guy, who woke up in the pond next to their dead bodies. So... The going story is it was a drug overdose um how they ended up in a fucking pond in the middle of january i will never know and to be perfectly honest i don't want to know because it's too fucking difficult to think about and then i was thrust into the middle of this huge whirlwind of fucking shit and grief at 17 of sort of like you know you're 17 and you're the last person to see two beloved people alive there's a lot of sort of survivor's guilt like you could have done more should have done more i should have said something you know and then there was a media fucking firestorm as well because it was a hot juicy story that like really sort of played into a lot of the sort of uh views that the 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 music crowd in canterbury are just a bunch of fucking drug addicts and so forth, which wasn't the case and you know there was a police investigation there was memorials and funerals and stuff and it was something i really struggled with for like my entire life since then um and when i was back in england over christmas this year i talked about it with my mum. i was like i just still haven't gotten over any of this and the fact is i fucking hate coming home because every time i come home i'm reminded of this and it's like i walked past the spot you know that i last saw them going to buy fucking christmas presents for my sisters you know and it's like it's something that's just weighed me down so much over the years so my mum suggested I go to see a therapist about it while I was back in England, and I did, and that was helpful, and we kind of, like, unpacked some of the feelings and the guilt and the resentment. And then while we were in the cabin in January and flew back to Canada, I realised that eight years had passed by since that night, and it, it was the first year that I had forgotten the date. And I'd lived through the entire day without thinking about it, and I used to call his parents every year to say, I'm still thinking about you and stuff, and it was just, you know... The fact that when you're grieving and mourning for somebody, time passes and like, you know, it doesn't get easier, but you think about it less. And that alone fucking crushed me because I was like, I was like, you know, this guy's would have been 25, but he's still fucking dead and he's still 17. They both are dead. He's still 24. He's still 17. They're both dead and they're not coming back. And I'm fortunate enough to be alive still and like forget about it. And that was a really, really difficult thing to unpack, and it was all about. The song came to me pretty much instantly after that, because I was just, I was so upset with myself that I'd forgotten the sort of anniversary, and so upset that like, basically my childhood, the sort of really critical final years of your childhood were just like rubbed from me and many of my friends. And it, the song just sort of fucking came out, and I, I felt a lot, a lot better for it, because it felt like. I felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders, but f- fuck me, did it hurt to sing that song in the studio and, like, to put it down. And <laughs> Rob came up to me afterwards, and I was, like, in tears after I'd finished singing it, and he was, just gave me a big old hug, and that made me feel a little bit better. But, yeah, but that's, that's it, basically. It's a long story.
0: Well, that begs a very practical question. Are you going to be able to play that live? That's a fucking good
3: question. I hope so. <laughs> I, hope
0: I can't even listen to it without crying, well, you know, the weight is there and and you talk about crying and everything and I you can sense the emotion in the recording. It's oh, I'm it's glad. there. Like speaking as someone who had no sort of I didn't know the story going into it. It was just here's the tracks on the new album and and you you sense that both in the lyrics and the performance. Well, I'm I'm so glad that came across it. So even if you never play it live,
3: <laughs> I'm going to play it live and if if I fucking cry in front of 100 people, I don't care. I'm a fucking man who cries deal but with it. It's it's real. Yeah. Totally. And I'm 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 really glad that, that song made the record. I, I I I grappled with it again thinking is this too personal? Is this exploiting the death of two human beings to make a fucking song? And I thought, no, this is me just fucking telling people how sad.
0: <laughs> it, it's real. It's honest. That's yeah. art. Go yeah, for, for it for sure, for sure. Now um, I, I we basically have to put it in the podcast now. Can we do that? I, I yeah, know. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Fucking go ahead. Okay. I, yeah. I think this may be the first time we have two songs in the podcast because yes. we've talked <laughs> them <laughs> up. We've just talked them up so much. I don't think, like, I, I want to play If I Have to Die because it's the single and I love the song, but I mean, we've talked so much about 25. It's just, it's just got to be in and there. And you know, on the
3: record, it's If I Have to Die into
2: 25. It makes quite yes. a nice pairing. It, oh, it's so nice.
1: And I forget That it never used to snow Where I grew up But it snowed that night And it didn't stop They're gonna Take me down to the station They wanna ask me A couple of questions Like do you remember Where they were going Can you tell us About their condition Do you know They'd been drinking or doing any kinds of drugs I apologise cos I don't remember, I guess I was too fucked up Guilt makes me forgetful And we haven't spoken in years My childhood came to a sudden end On the day that I buried a couple friends And I'll carry that with me to the day that I die That I was the last one to see you alive But if we were invincible Forever wasn't alive You wouldn't be Seventeen, six feet under You'd have just turned twenty-five The wailing of the sirens, the funerals and the flowers came. That crushing dose of silence. And the hindsight is 2020, and that was 2012. I was 17, drunk and reckless, and you.
5: Twice my size But if we were invincible And forever wasn't alive You wouldn't be 76 feet under You'd have just turned 25
0: So where do we go from there? Jeez. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I've got a lot of like, I've got more questions and I'm like, oh, geez, it feels like so weird to go Keep from that." to... Yeah.
0: Well, um, I want to ask, and I've been wondering this from the start, um, why, like, I can understand making the album when you did, because you'd plan, it sounds like you'd plan to anyway. Yeah. Why release it now? Because it seems like a, you know, hard time because you, you can't tour it right now you, there's, you're very limited with how you can promote it why was this the right time to put the album out I just wanted to put out a fucking album man yeah that was I figured that was the answer that was
3: it like I don't know Nick yeah. how do you feel I, I well, felt like sorry you just have to you yeah. just got to go on living like, right yeah we got to go on living man yeah. people are at home they're fucking bored no one's doing anything other bands aren't waiting to put out their albums until this is over no. who knows when it's over it might not be over for a long time let's take advantage of the radio silence and just fucking put out a record
2: yeah. I mean there were like there was there was a plan. There were like logistical reasons that we that we had in mind. We were like, oh, this would be a good radio strategy, da, da 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 But what it comes down to like like again, nothing that I'm saying goes past Jonas's sentiment of the fact that like we made this art and if we keep it to ourselves it's gonna rattle around in our brains until it stops sounding like real music. You know, when you just hear a word too many times and you're like, What kind of a word is bull? Right. And it's like, oh, there's a weird word. Bowl is a weird word, but like <laughs> same phenomenon, right? We want people to hear this music. We've been fired up about it since, since March. And God, if, 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 if I have to die has any sort of like substance to it, where it's like, there's change that's possible. And like, you just got to keep moving and keep living. Then I think that like, we have to take that to heart ourselves. We have yeah. to take our own advice and be like, here's some art to get you through this time that could, Reasonably speaking, be just the most depressing time of your life if if, if that's the way that it's going for you. Like we want to fill the world with colorful thoughts and emotions, and they're not all easy to deal with, but they're all human. Yeah. So yeah, and I don't know.
3: In, in many ways, too, like we have just been so fortunate as a band to have been embraced by Kingston and the people who supported us. Absolutely. Like I, it blows my mind that anybody cares about anything we have to say, and and the fact that they do is just. Like it's, a, it's such a privilege and I will never take it for granted and there's a lot of time that I think gets wasted by bands in general of like sort of tunnel visioning towards exponential growth and that's important you have to do that you have to expand but what's really important to me is that there are fucking hundreds maybe thousands of people who give a shit about what we have done and are still giving a shit about what we do. So, if anything, this is a fucking record for the people who have cared about us when we are complete nobodies and still arguably are for the past five, going on six years. You know, if the people who have supported us and bought our merch and come to our shows and sang Dive Bars and 81 South and so on and so forth a thousand times hear it and love it and it only goes as far as them, I'm happy with so that, man. It. So, fucking be it. Yeah. Like, it's almost a selfish, self serving thing. I wanna just put this out and it's almost a. Uh, the people who have supported us deserve it arguably more than the people who haven't yet, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah. We're in Skeleton Park right now. Uh, it was basically an arbitrary decision, partly because we needed space so yeah. we can distance. We can't really record in the studio now. It's too confined. Yeah. But uh, I just sort of thought Skeleton Park would be fun, but it didn't occur to me until... I got here that it was a little over a year ago that Riley Jabore and I were uh, lucky enough to introduce you guys at the Skeleton Park Arts Festival. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I remember uh, Dylan had that sign that said, Hardest Working Band in oh, Kingston. No. This has
2: caused us so much controversy. How's uh, no it idea. really? Oh. Yes, well, okay. So? Can I speak on this one? Please. Please. You can. I Take think that lead. I might be a bit more diplomatic about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. We ran with that. We did. Uh, because we are so thirsty to be a rock and roll band. I think yeah. that that's pretty obvious from who we are and how we talk and what we do that like all of us want this to be the thing that we do forever. Yeah. Um, You know, we played these cover gigs in 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 Suburban Abyss, Barry and Ajax. Like we, for like two for, years. For so long. Three times uh, a week. And just suffered. <laughs> to, 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 to people um, who just wanted to hear... Bruno Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Uptown funk is the universal language, according to Adam Neely. Uh, Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah, we did that. We, like, you know, have been slogging through this thing trying to make... Like, we've done function gigs. We've played... We we booked a tour around a wedding in Milwaukee, which was hilarious and a great time. Um, We, like, all of us want that. Um, And so we kind of just ran with that. This has caused us a great deal of controversy because there are other hardworking bands in Kingston who rightfully so um, think that that could be a bit contentious. Um, and <laughs> I'd also we, like
3: to point out we weren't the ones who, who coined the phrase. <laughs> no, we weren't. By the no. Way. <laughs> we weren't just like, hey hear ye hear ye we're putting a stake in this ground and declaring
2: (laughs) us the hardest working band people just said it and we were like sure and then some people were We're like that's not a thing some people (laughs) like got mad about it and I was like spicy
3: sure we're spicy going with this now you know (laughs) this is fucking hilarious Um, like we I don't actually think that you know I don't think that we're the hardest working band in Kingston how do you measure hard work you know there are a thousand different ways to do it I just know the things that we've done I know that we've played over 400 shows in five years. We've toured and slept in our van every night for fucking two months nearly. We've paid for everything that we've ever done out of our own pockets. We've cultivated this following when we couldn't make money and couldn't do anything we just took to the fucking street and played. Like I think... Without trying to toot our own horn, I think we've we've worked pretty damn fucking yeah. hard. And think... and if Dylan wants to make a beautiful sign that will remain <laughs> on my wall for the rest of time, I love you, Dylan. So it's, be it.
2: It's a good motivator because, like, at least in my eyes, that's a title I want to have. Same. You know what I mean? Like, again, with this, this whole pandemic scenario, we've been, like, having to invent our own meaning and, like, find ways to stay active and, like, really, like, keep giving ourselves reasons to be. And if like if if that's a thing that we can work towards then i think that that's a good motivator if that's a thing that we can put ourselves into and be like we <laughs> have to live up to this little plaque on jonas's wall then like yeah. well, and, and i'm into it it's, <laughs> it's always it. been
3: a good reminder too that you know we once sort of got that title and people were sort of saying it a lot and it felt really good and anytime we got lazy and complacent i'd look on that wall and that God, plaque would stare down at me and shame me into doing something you know So like, it's been a good fire under our ass being like people once thought this we better not
0: lose that you know yeah <laughs> I had no idea it was so controversial. It has that's, been that's very, very controversial. Okay. <laughs> we
2: well, certainly didn't play Skeleton Arch- Park Arts Arch- Fest because... Yeah, <laughs> I would
3: also like to point out that there are other hardworking bands in Kingston. Well, I
2: was yeah. going to say,
0: there's certainly no disrespect. There's so many people working hard in Absolutely, Kingston. There's yeah. so much talent in this city. But as someone who's followed you guys for a while now, and as a music fan, like I do see how you guys have worked hard. And it's very gratifying to see an album... Finally out! Thank you. This is very exciting for us. I know it's exciting for you. This is validating for us. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh
3: boy. For a while, I felt like the hardest working poses in Kingston. I I (gasps) shit you you not. I really did.
4: So that feels good. Well, you make lots of references to Kingston on the album. Yeah, absolutely. And you did mention earlier that you feel like it's really important that someone knows exactly the story behind a yep. song. And the album is littered with all kinds of references to Kingston. Princess right. Street, you know. Downey Pier, Rideau Street, you even mentioned like Dancing in the Dive Bars, we've mentioned several times on this
2: podcast. We know that yep. was the Brooklyn, yep. rest in peace. Yep. The Kingston Fire <laughs> of 1840 is in there. Yeah, yes, exactly. I'm dead serious. No one's going to get this, but I want to declare to the world that in you, the ocean, the reference to an engine starting a fire. is about 1840 when Kingston burned down. I had to to get that out there. You can continue, I'm sorry. And thus why (laughs) Kingston is now the limestone city, correct? Well, precisely. That and, like, prison labor. But, you know, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) So that leads me to my question of...
4: How important do you feel it is to make such, uh, such narrow and specific references for any artist from any city anywhere so you can tell such a, a detailed story? Because it's, you're trying to tell a story in a song and you've only got so much time to work with, right? How much effort do you put in to make that so detailed and so referential to such important landmarks and hallmarks of your life?
3: Well, I've only ever been good about writing about shit that I've lived through. I've tried to do the Springsteen thing, Believe me, I've tried to be Bruce Springsteen many times, where you sort of write from the perspective of other people, and there is a certain element of that on the album. You know, not everything is sort of. Uh, there is a bit of embellishment in some of the stories to sort of make them more interesting. Because what did Rob say about embellishment?
2: Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. That's the right. That's the thing. <laughs> don't get. Don't let the
3: truth get in the way of the good story. Although twenty-five is a hundred percent accurate, but you know, like. We are a band that exists in Kingston. Uh, The last six years of our lives have have been either like us touring or the experiences that we've had basically in this town and those are very formative life experiences, you know. So if, if Rideau Street about the basement apartment I used to live in features in there or the image of me stumbling piss drunk down Princess Street on my way back from work or to work, I think that's important in painting a picture. I also think it's important because I fucking love Canadiana I love that shit, man. I'm English and I love it. The Glorious Sons did an amazing job with painting those kinds of pictures in the uh, Young Beauties and Falls record. And I wasn't trying to write a Glorious Sons album by any stretch of the imagination, but I loved that. I connected with that. And evidently thousands of people from across the world connected with that too. So it could be Rideau Street. It could be Princess Street. It could be the Gore Downey Pier, but it could also be anywhere. You know, it could be... Like pick you up as an example, you know. I met you in the dark at the Gore Downey pier. You had a Belmont cigarette tucked behind your left ear. That's a fucking Canadian picture right there. <laughs> but it's not exclusively a Canadian story. If you, I feel like if you paint a detailed picture for the listener, they can apply that to anywhere. You know, that could be a pier in I don't know, the Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, and it could be a Marlboro cigarette behind their ear for all they care. But the, the sort of honing in and sort of sort of zooming in on sort of like specifics, I think creates an easier picture to follow that then you can apply anywhere. And yeah, it's, it's our stories. It's our life. It's why, why, why wouldn't we be specific
2: about that kind of thing? I guess. What do you say? I don't know, Nick, you, you, you're better at well this kind of thing than I am. I, d- I don't think that I am because Jonas, you have a talent in so much as that you're like, you're not good at being anybody but yourself. Oh, thank you. No, I mean that as a compliment because like, again, the sort of writing that you do Shines through because it paints that kind of detailed picture. It's very descriptive. And I I think that, like, I speak on behalf of pretty much everybody in the band that Kingston has been a very formative place for us, right? Like, none of us are from here. I moved here for university and really just committed. I was like, I'm not going back home. To hell with that. I'm going to stay here. Uh, I'm from Guelph. Carl's from, like, Vancouver. Liam and Henry are from the States. Sasha's from Europe. He's from Geneva. Uh, So, like, all of us kind of entered this relationship with Kingston and, like, that shines through not by virtue of Kingston being itself, but by virtue of the relationship that we have with it and by virtue of the fact that we were kind of shaped by this place, I totally think. Exactly. I agree. Um, yeah. and again, Jonas is really talented at like writing descriptively. The different songs when you if, if like this album book kind of points it out a little bit, like sort of who wrote what sort of shines through because some of it's like more metaphorical and that's like all Sasha um the one that I wrote was you the ocean and that was specifically like a concept that I had about like a love song about climate change and I'm like I just ran with that so it's also it's full of puns and innuendos uh that I don't want to talk about on the radio but you should uh, talk about that on the air no I don't want to do that uh
3: (laughs) Nick's mom's probably listening
2: yeah she probably is um (laughs) but 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 Jonas is like the kind of painter that like is like romantic era like here's this scene and it it really could be anywhere but you can't do that by saying it could be anywhere you got to do that by saying here is exactly where it is yeah. and letting someone else form that same relationship based on their own experience yeah and, and I, I didn't even really think about that Riley until you pointed it out but I'm thinking yeah Jesus man
3: like when I when I listen back to the, these songs or when we rehearse them I have this weird thing you have synesthesia where you picture colours yes. I picture places in my head when I play you look so good when you cry I think of Where that fucking ice rink is, like, in the winter, a meter behind us. When I think of Hurricane, I think of my old apartment on Rideau Street. When I think of I Have to Die, I think of my bedroom. When I think of 25, I think of the High Street in Canterbury. When I think of Pick You Up, I think of picking Connor up from Casa. And I think of Red House. And I think of just the suburban hell of the West End. And I think of the Gordowney Pier in the summertime, you know. And that's a part of me that's been ingrained into me just through the experience of just living day-to-day life and so I guess it makes sense that it would sort of come out that way when I write things down also, street is a
4: really easy word to rhyme with. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I've
4: always thought there's something really beautiful in songwriting like that, where things are so specific, but I can listen to a song. One of my favorite lyrics in a song is, uh, God damn it, I woke up on the floor of a famous Minneapolis rapper whose name will go unmentioned. I've never woken up on the floor of a Minneapolis-based rapper, but the song tells like an emotional story where you can kind of paint that same palette to other things you've experienced. And I find sure. that really fascinating in the application of songwriting.
3: And Springsteen does it all the fucking time. You know, Brett Emmons does it all the time. Bob Dylan does it all the time. Like these songwriters, and Josh Ritter is one of them too, these songwriters that I aspire to and love and have been listening to their music their entire lives. You know, I've never had my heart broken on the Jersey Shore. I never picked up Mary as her dress waved, as the screen door slams, and I drove off in my muscle car, you know, down Thunder Road. But goddamn, when I listen to Thunder Road, do I picture myself in that scenario? You know, when you paint that picture, you're there. You know, some people may not have even heard of the old Downey Pier or Princess Street. But when you paint that picture, my hope is that when they hear the songs, they're there.
2: Mm -hmm. It really invites you to build that same relationship with the place that like all of us have been doing for so long. Yeah, exactly.
4: Well, let's talk about uh, how hard is it to plan an album release show in the new world where social distancing and physical distancing and all of these new strategic areas are part of planning such a momentous occasion for the band?
3: Uh, pretty terrifying, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I find planning a show at the best of times incredibly stressful and scary uh planning one in a pandemic is that much more so um one thing that kind of does work on our side is that there can only be 100 people at each show so there when you keep the numbers low it becomes more manageable the mckinnon brothers have just been such a dream to work with they're they're the fucking best and they've done so much to support us over the years so we really couldn't have asked for a better sort of partner to work with in this endeavor So they've been really helpful about sort of, you know, we're going to have very, very strict distancing guidelines. Everybody's going to get a circle. We're going to be encouraging people to wear their masks as much as they possibly can, apart from when they're drinking, obviously. There is the element that it's at a brewery and it's a drive outside of town. So obviously we want to encourage people to enjoy themselves and drink the McKinnon beer, but we also want to encourage people to never drink and drive. So we're offering a 10% discount for merch for, for designated drivers. It's certainly been a challenge to organize this but it's coming together really quickly and i think people are hungry for live music and i think also people don't want to fuck this up so with that in mind i'm hoping that people can be responsible and can be good to one another and be kind and considerate and wash their hands and wear masks and so on and hopefully everything goes well and we're able to do this to do this more but um Logistically speaking, it's been a bit of a hellish nightmare, but nowhere near as hellish as I as I expected, partly because we were just working with some great people.
2: This is like just part of the thing of being a musician where like you just live for these two hour slots at a time and the rest of your life is like sitting there like twitching, being like, OK, when is this going to happen? When am I going to get up there? And the, the process of that becomes challenging when you get more professional about it because you have to coordinate shows and stuff. So all of this stuff, all this anxiety, like, really, I'm just waiting for it to just to, to melt away into the, the comfort of good harmonies and pints nice nice in blend. the field. What? Good blends. Good blends.
0: All right, I think that covers everything I have. Do you have anything else? Yeah, I... I yeah,
2: that, that's
0: everything I wanted and more, so... Fantastic. Beauty. Mm-hmm. Thank you so
3: much, you guys. Yeah,
2: thank you for having us. I yep. feel
3: like this is a lot better, even though I was late. But last time I was on your podcast, I was three sheets to the wind drunk at Back to the Farm. So, Yeah, that was about a year ago.
4: It was, yeah. That was some of my favorite recording this podcast <laughs> has ever had.
0: That was the podcast where we added that bit to the credits about uh, uh, opinions expressed by <laughs> podcast guests don't necessarily reflect <laughs> Kingston <laughs> Kingston yeah. Live hosts and staff. Yeah. I like wanted
4: it? the disclaimer to have that, and then at the end, except Riley, who wants to own a guillotine.
2: <laughs> you and I both, brother. Yes. I'm going to add ready. that
0: guillotine bit to the credits. Good, the go way. for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the listener's going to hear that in about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. This has been Kingston Live. We encourage you to rate us on your listening platform of choice and subscribe where possible. Kingston Live was recorded in Kingston by Titan Sound. Hosted by John Sanfilippo and Riley Jabour, Writing and research by Peter Sanfilippo. Executive producer Rob Howard. Special thanks to Jackson Coulter and Reed Cunningham. Opinions expressed by Kingston Live guests are their own and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Kingston Live hosts and staff, except for Riley Jabor. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at kingstonlive.ca.